a new series. We're looking at the life of David. Again, remember we, we finished um, the first Samuel uh, last year, and uh, we, we, we paused because he is on the cusp of becoming king. Uh, Saul has just died, as again we'll see this morning. So we did see the shepherd who would become king, but in 2 Samuel we see the king who would become shepherd. He rules as a shepherd. So we want to start in 2 Samuel chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 16. If you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. The writer of 2 Samuel writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did it go? Tell me. And he answered, The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people who have fallen are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? The young man who told him said, By chance I, I happened to be on Mount Geboah, and there was Saul leaning on a spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I said, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And I answered, I am, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. So did all the men who were with him. They mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? He answered, I am the son of a sojourner and a Malachite. David said to him, How is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. He struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Let's go, Lord, and pray. Our Father, we, we, we ask as always you open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears, our mouth, our hands, our feet, that we will go in obedience to Christ. Transform us by the power of your word. For your glory, by the means of the gospel. May I decrease so you can increase. In the name of your son we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I, uh, I don't want to brag this morning, but I'm going to. Anytime someone says I don't want to brag, what's going to come out is some bragging. But the first time I ever ran a five-kilometer race, I got first place in my age group. Now, this is before I really got into running. This is before we, 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 we moved to Frankfurt. But my sister had been in a very severe car wreck, broke her back. And a little over a year later, after her recovery, she, she signed us up, uh, all, all of us up for a 5K race. I think I got a picture of, of the group of us that went. Here we are, four of us, my father and sister, wife and I, entered this race. And I don't remember how well they did, but I remember how well I did. I got first place in my age group. And it was a blast. It was an absolute blast. Here's me and the missus, right, just hanging out, just enjoying ourselves. Uh, life, life is, is good. And there at the end, we stayed for the awards and see how it went. And sure enough, they called my name, first place, got the medal, right? And, and I, we, I think we went out to eat after that. I wore my medal into the restaurant, and, and I bragged about it for weeks. Number one in all of Owen County, 
Nothing else after that sentence matters, right? I was number one in my age group in Owen County in that race. Now, everything I just told you is true. None of that is false. It may be a bit misleading, but none of it's false. If you were to ask my wife or my father or my sister or anyone else that actually knows what happened at this race, they will say, we really did enter that race and I really did win first place of my age group. What they will add to that story is I was the only person in my age group. In fact, if if you go back to, to this picture, you see that I am wearing blue jeans. You do not wear blue jeans if you intend on running. Because I didn't run. My wife and I, this is halfway in the race, we took a picture. Selfies for you young people. And, and, and because we were there to support my sister and support a good cause and, and, and whatnot. And I was very surprised to find out I had won. After all, this picture was taken at the second mile mark. <laughs> Funny, isn't it, how you can lay out the facts. And if you articulate them in a certain way, you can convince people that an entire narrative is true. But then you can add these other facts and discover that something's missing in that story. we got something similar going on here. We get a story, much of it is true. Saul is dead. The heirs to the throne are dead. Israel is fleeing. That is true. David is, has, has no rival to the throne. But what the story this man tells is missing some very important components. And so the narrative he spins is indeed a spin. Let's start here with the first 10 verses with the perjury. Now, verse 1 is like any good sequel, right? You, you get all the information you, you need to know about what has happened before, right? The, 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 the other bad guy got caught, and now this other bad guy's coming because he's mad about the other bad guy or something Spider-Man said or did, whatever it might be, right? You get all the information right there in the beginning. If this were a Star Wars film, verse 1 would be going, you know, into space, right? With that music going on, you know, that's a bit loud, you know? And, and so, so this is what you're getting here in verse 1, right? Saul is dead, and David has returned from striking down the Amalekites. That, that summarizes the previous chapter. One and two Samuel are, are likely written as one book originally. And so, so we're caught up with, with everything that has happened. David is in Ziklag. This is his home base um, uh, since he's been on, on the run from, from Saul. And in verse 2, we see that while David and his men are in Ziklag, they're recovering from that great battle, they... they, they they won. A man arrives with news regarding the battle that Saul had against the Philistines. Now, immediately David knows something is up just by the man's wardrobe. It's described as, as, as his clothes being torn and dirt upon his head. Now, this was a common way to express grief in ancient Near Eastern culture. I was reading a uh, biography of Mary Queen of Scots a, a few weeks ago, and there's this interesting scene in that Mary Queen of Scots, she's the mother of King James, probably the only detail you care about, but, but uh, her first husband died. Whether or not she was involved in it is a matter of historians, but her first husband dies, and as, as sovereign, she was expected to mourn, I believe it was 30 to 40 days, and she was to only wear black for the entire period. 
And on one particular day, there was a matter of state that she had to take care of. And she came out of her bedchambers not wearing black. And it caused this great scandal throughout Scotland. Well, that makes sense in 16th century Scotland, right? Perhaps you grew up in a culture where if you went to a funeral, maybe even today, you're likely to wear black, right? Most funerals I do, I will have a lot of black on. We understand this, right? And so, so, so when David sees this man with news from the battle against the Philistines in this sort of dress, he knows something is up, something bad has happened. And so what David does, verses 3 through 10, is he asks, Three questions, right? Where are you from? There in verse three. Verse four, who won the battle? Verse five, how do you know these things, right? Did you just read it as a retweet online? Or did someone share it on Facebook from a questionable source? Where are you getting your, your, your information? If it's from CNN, probably can't believe any of those sources, right? But where did you get this information? So verse three, where you come from? He says he is a survivor from the camp of Israel. Now, he reveals, I believe down in verse 8, he is an Amalekite, uh, which means he's likely presenting himself as a mercenary. Uh, this was typical. Remember, David was a mercenary for the Philistines for a brief period of time, right? And so this man is likely a mercenary, at least presenting himself as a mercenary for the Israelites. Uh, regardless, he comes claiming he was an eyewitness to the battle and more importantly to the death of Saul and his sons. Verse 4, who won the battle? Well, uh, he, he, he says, it wasn't us. The Philistines overran us. They have killed us. It is, it is bad. Now, verse 5 through 10, the question, how do you know these things? And the man's answer is striking, starting in verse 6. Notice his story. By chance, I happened to be on Mount Geboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. He looked behind him, he saw me, and he called, and I answered, here I am. He said, who are you? I'm an Amalekite. There's, there's him identifying who he is there in verse 8. In verse 9, Saul says, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, yet my life still lingers. And so the man admits, I then um, uh, killed the king as an act of mercy. Now, the news of military defeat is tragic enough. But the death of the king and all of his household, his heirs, would have been catastrophic. We still know today that the sudden loss of uh, leadership is a serious crisis at all levels, isn't it? It is a very serious crisis. I don't know how many know this, but many of us know that John Wilkes Booth assassinated President Lincoln. We, we know that, right? But many of us miss the part where... John Wilkes Booth wasn't a lone gunman. He was involved in a uh, conspiracy and involved several other people. In fact, the first woman ever executed by hanging under federal law was involved. Mary Surratt, I believe her name was, was involved with the, uh, uh, the, the co-conspiracy to kill the president. In addition to killing the president, Booth and his cohorts wanted to kill the vice president, Andrew Johnson, as well as the secretary of state. Now, fortunately, they didn't die. The guy supposed to kill the vice president got cold feet. He was still hung for it. The guy who was supposed to kill the secretary of state thought he had killed him, but he ended up surviving. Now, can you imagine, just for a minute, even whether it's 2021 or 1865, if the president, the vice president, and the secretary of state all die in a single night? 
This is why we have since established the line of succession. Well, imagine then in the ancient Near Eastern Hulk culture if the entire line of the king dies in a single battle. But, but if, if you're familiar with, with the story and you recall our study of 1 Samuel 31, something seems off about the story, doesn't it? It, it does. Something's not right. Because the narrative of the Amalekite doesn't match the narrative of the writer of 1 Samuel or the writer of First and Second Chronicles, I would add. In the original, Saul was wounded by Philistine arrows, didn't mention chariots or anything like that. He then requested that his armor bearer uh, finish him because he was mortally wounded. The armor bearer refused. In fact, the armor bearer waited until his sovereign died. He then put a sword to, to his own body and, and died himself. Yet there are enough similarities, right? The setting, the battle, the conclusion, all that matches. And you can, you can assume that the man comes bearing these gifts, the crown of the king, the armlet of the king. He brings them to David. His story sounds true enough, doesn't it? Well, let's look verses 11 through 16 at the punishment. And the narrative here takes a surprising term. David does not respond with rejoicing, which is likely what the man assumes. The guy who's been trying to kill David is dead. That is usually a cause at least for going out to old Charlie's, isn't it? But instead he weeps. He tears his clothes like the Amalekite had his. He encourages all of his men to join him in lamentation. Now later, David will tell us in 2 Samuel 4 that the man thought that in announcing this, he was bringing good news. But David receives it as tragic news. And so instead of celebrating, he mourns. And the rest of this chapter, starting in verse 17, is a psalm of laments that David would have had the people of Israel sing over the death of their king and his heirs. And we're starting to get a hint here. That the weeping of David is legitimate and sincere. The weeping of the Amalekites is manufactured. Well, after this period of mourning, verses 13 to 14, David interrogates the man. And once again, we, we see uh, a few questions. The first one is verse 13. It's the same question he asked before. Where are you from? Now, this is the same question, but it's not the same question. Before it was, who are you, right? That's, tell, tell me, who are you? What makes you think you know, we, we should listen to you? But now he really wants to know, what's, who really are you? What's really going on here? And the man tells us, you see it there in the text, he's a Malachi sojourner. Now, sojourners differ from a, a foreigner. A sojourner comes with certain legal protections and privileges, as well as certain responsibilities. And being that he is the son of a sojourner, he would have likely have understood Jewish culture, Jewish law, and Jewish expectations. One of those expectations is you do not kill the king. Or, as David is fond of describing the king, the Lord's anointed. You do not kill that, kill him. Remember, Saul's armor bearer got this. Saul's armor bearer was to do whatever it is that Saul tells him to do. Remember, David had once served as Saul's armor bearer. And the armor bearer understood, my king cannot die. 
And I certainly am not going to be the one ultimately responsible for his death. I will die before him. And so when he sees that he fails at that fundamental responsibility to protect the king, he himself dies. He would not strike the Lord's anointed. In fact, had any loyal Jew come up on the corpse of the king and his sons, they would have done everything they could to hide the bodies so as to protect them from the Philistines. You remember what the Philistines end up doing. They string the bodies up and use them as trophies. This man doesn't do any of this. This man instead is an Amalekite, which ethnically makes him the enemy of Israel. Remember, it was the Amalekites whom Saul was ordered in 1 Samuel 15 to wipe out, but he doesn't do it. And that is the beginning of the downfall of Saul. And let us not miss the irony. Who is it that David just defeated? The Amalekites. So imagine, if you will, uh, the army of Israel goes to hang out with Saul to fight out the Philistines, leaving Israel vulnerable. And here is David and his, his group of merry men. And, and, and the, the Amalekites come in to plunder. And, and David says, there's no one left. We'll have to fight them. And so he goes and he defeats them. And as he's recovering from battle, an Amalekite shows up and says, oh, by the way, I killed the king. David, and David is well aware that something is, is off here. You see, this man isn't a loyal sojourner or a mercenary. He's a scavenger. You see, following the battle, he does what all scavengers do, these things. And there is plenty of people who, after a battle, there's, there's things to, to, to be grabbed and won and sold. He likely goes throughout the battlefield and sees the sea of dead bodies, and he comes across the king and his sons. What does he do? He takes the most valuable thing the king has his crown, and his armlets. In fact, I think I can prove this. If you go back to the story the narrator gives about the death of Saul, we, we get these two verses. This is the next day when the Philistines, now notice there, from the death of Saul and to when the Philistines arrive is about a 24-hour period. And during this period, it's, it's, anyone can, can, can be out in the battlefield. But the Philistines arrive 24 hours later and they strip the slain. You always do this after the battle. You've got to save the weapons and, and all that sort of stuff. They found Saul and his three sons fallen on, on Mount Gilboa. Now notice there, there are three sons dead. There's actually four sons of Saul. We'll meet him later, Mephibosheth. I love the story of Mephibosheth. But, but here's three, and, and this man only mentions one son. That's an interesting detail. So they cut off his head, stripped off his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines. Now, what did the Philistines not take off of Saul? His crown and his armlets. It had already been stripped. This guy is not a sojourner, not a mercenary. He's a scavenger. And the second question is given in verse 14. Who do you think you are? And you'll notice there, there isn't an answer to this question. Because think about it. You've asked this question someone before, right? Someone cuts you off in the parking lot and takes that close parking spot in, in, in Walmart, right? And it's raining outside and you've got your mother-in-law with you and she's going to be complaining the whole time about how wet she is. And you would drop her off in the front, right? You look at that person. What do you say? Who do you think you are, right? You don't want an answer. It's an accusation. So to David here asks, who do you think you are? This, this is a question of judgment that you would kill the Lord's anointed. And so in response, he orders the man be executed. That seems harsh to us, but this is in line with Jewish law. You can read the laws about perjury, particularly 
perjury, those guilty of perjury regarding the death of someone. Thus, this would have been a capital crime. And we should add one of the purposes of this chapter is to emphasize the fact that David was not involved in the death of Saul. Now, let me show you a few things, and and then we'll look at some application. First of all, these 16 verses serve as a type of chiasm. Um, Now, here's how it works. Notice here in verse 1, David strikes an Amalekite. So what, what happens in verses 15 through 16? David strikes an Amalekite. Now, in verse 2 to 5, what happened? David questions an Amalekite. What happened later? David questioned an Amalekite. And what do you get there in the middle? He is mourning the death of the king, which is the dominant theme of this entire... I find this stuff fascinating. You may not, and if you don't, we're moving on. But actually, there's another chiasm here. Saul's kingship is taken from him after he refuses to kill the Amalekites. You remember? 1 Samuel 15. What does Saul do instead with the Amalekites? He plunders them. How does the rule and reign and life of Saul end? He is is killed by the Philistines, but he is plundered by an Amalekite. It's almost like God himself is writing the Bible. Well, what do we do with this story? Let me give you just three points of application, and then we'll be home in time for BBS tonight. Number one, justice is the Lord's. One of the greatest mysteries in our world today is justice. If you're unaware of that, somehow you skipped 2020 and I'm jealous of you. This is the discussion of the day, isn't it? How does a society carry out justice that is fair, equitable, and incorruptible? Thousands of years we've been trying to answer that question. And we always seem to fall up short, don't we? Now, we know our ultimate hope of justice is found in Christ. But the issue of justice is a human issue, isn't it? At a personal level, there is the constant temptation to take matters of justice into our own hands, isn't it? Think about issues like violence, anger, malice, greed, bitterness, envy, wrath, resentment, rage, deceit, corruption, hate, All of that is motivated by a desire to take matters into our own hands. Now, any of those adjectives, does that describe our our, our current cultural moments? Violence, bitterness, discontentment, resentment, wrath, envy? Paul is right when he writes, quoting Deuteronomy, by the way, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. Because it says in Deuteronomy, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. See, David was afforded numerous opportunities to have his revenge. Can I give you just two examples? In 1 Samuel 24, David is hiding in a cave. No one's going to take him and his band of merry men. It was a small group at the time. They're not going to take them in because they are enemies of the state and you don't want to cross the king. So he's hiding out in a cave, and you thought 2020 was bad. And just so happens, the king himself, the man that wants him dead, enters the cave in order to relieve himself, and David sneaks up behind him, right? You remember what David's men say? This is your chance. Revenge is yours. Take it. You can have it. But what do we find in 24.6? The Lord forbid that I would do this to my Lord. Yahweh's anointed. 
to put my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. Remember in Hebrew, in the, lang- in the Hebrew language, if you see something repeated, it's for emphasis. What does David want us to see? I may not like his leadership style. I may not like his leadership, period. I may not like his policies. I may not have even voted for the guy. But I will not strike him. I will not turn against him. If only I could think of an application in the year 2021. Another occasion, in chapter 26, David literally sneaks into the the tent of a sleeping Saul. I mean, that is... That is awesome. I mean, let's, I mean, every good, every man movie, right? You got to have a scene like this where your hero can sneak into, right? This is Mission Impossible level stuff. He sneaks into Saul's camp, right? And, and he, he goes into his tent where he's asleep. And, and, and they're the men again, right? He takes one of his, his, his guys with them. And, and, and he says, destroy him, kill him. This is your chance. What does David do? Verse 9 and 11. Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. It's almost prophetic, isn't it? The Lord forbid that I will put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But do you remember what he did? He took Saul's spear, snuck it out of the camp, went across the ridge, the holler for those of you who ain't Yankees, and he shouts, hey guys, look what I got. Which I think is just... Awesome, right? It's like the greatest story of David. I'm sorry. But he would not seek revenge. You see, it's hard lesson for a nation of rage and hate to grasp. And that is the beauty and the necessity of God's justice. You can spend your entire life trying to defend your honor, get what you think you're owed, and fight everyone who stands in your way. Can you believe what someone tweeted? I got to fix them. I got to destroy them. I've got to go in this direction. I've got to fight and I've got to scream and I've got to shout. You can spend your entire life that way because revenge is easy. Trusting the Lord is a lot harder. One option will bring misery and chaos. The other will bring peace. Choose this day to see your neighbor as fellow image bearers that you are commanded to love, or you can see them as your enemy that you are called to destroy. Want to bring peace. The other will bring our our current cultural moments. Secondly, the suffering of others is never good news. Solomon writes in Proverbs 24, the son of David, do not rejoice when your enemy falls and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. Of course, that's usually true. It's just not true during an election year. It's not true whenever, you know, they think differently than you. It's hard to love your neighbor when you see, when you, when you see their struggles as a personal opportunity for yourself. When we care more about our side winning than the needs and the concerns of others, we choose the life of an Amalekite, not the life of Christ. And such thinking will dehumanize others and deify ourselves. Our society increasingly celebrates the suffering of others. We struggle to celebrate with those who celebrate. If your co-worker's children gets that degree... If they get accepted into that program or school, if they win that scholarship, if they get picked on that team or to get hired at the job when your child doesn't it, how do we often respond? We're going to complain about it online. 
will call up all of our family and say, I need you to sabotage their life because I'm a bitter person. When your neighbor moves because they can afford that bigger house, when your cousin enjoys the perfect wedding, when that other church enjoys a revival, how do we often respond? Not with rejoicing with those who rejoice, celebrating with those who celebrate. We too often believe that the suffering of others is a blessing for us. But the Bible is clear. We rejoice with those who are rejoicing, regardless of how it may affect us. And when we learn to rejoice with others, we will learn to mourn with others in their mourning. This is what love does. But when we see other people, their suffering is an opportunity for us. That is the thinking of miserable people. And miserable people are never happy. And they will never enjoy the blessings of God. Thirdly, and there's a lot more to be said by each of these, but thirdly, this is the main point, I think, of the text. Jesus is good news. In the year 490 B.C., the Persian army, led by King Darius I, who shows up in the Old Testament, the book of Daniel and elsewhere, he attacked the Greeks as part of the Greco-Persian Wars. One battle took place where the Persian army vastly outnumbered the Athenians. Yet despite their low numbers, the Greeks won. In fact, many historians argue that victory of the Greeks, which pushed back the Persians and really turned the tide of the war, is why democracy is not a dirty word today. But as the legend goes, there was a Greek soldier by the name of Pheidippides. That name will be on the quiz at the end. And you have to spell it. It's with two P's in the middle, right? So, and the P-H at the beginning, Pheidippides. Try saying that one time fast. But he ran from the side of the battle to Athens. It's about a 24 to 25 mile journey. And as he entered the city gates, he announced in Greek, Nenekankamen, that is, we've won. And as the story goes, he then died of exhaustion. The place of battle was a city called Marathon. And it's why we run marathons today. Now, Marathon is 26.2 miles because of the Queen of England. That's a separate illustration. I'll save it for another day. You see, when the Bible describes good news, it is this ancient context of a herald that one would run and say, victory. We've won. You are free. There is good news here. They would be a herald or they would preach good news, liberation, success. The Amalekite, you'll notice here, does the opposite. He comes thinking he's bearing good news, but it's tragic news. The king and his family line are dead. So David rightly mourns the death, even of his enemy. You see... To him, the death of Saul is good news to David. Therefore, it must be good news. Might I suggest that for all that the Amalekite gets wrong, he almost, almost gets this one right. He proclaimed, his proclamation is premature. He was celebrating the death of the wrong king. The good news the world desperately needs is that Jesus, the son of David, the king of Israel, has died. Yet his death doesn't mean defeat. The gospel was freedom from revenge, from greed, from pride, from defeat, from addiction, from malice, from hate. 
Jesus suffers under the weight of all our sin and shame and guilt upon the cross. The king of Israel dies. He doesn't die wounded in the field, but courageously upon a cross. He lays his life down. Yet the difference between the death of this king, both of whom suffer under the justice of God, one for he deserved it, the other he dies for us. This king, the king of Israel, the son of David, is risen in victory. So at the end of the day, that is really what I think this text is all about. Israel wanted a king who would rule and reign. What they got was a tyrant and a despot. What they needed was God to be their king. And the day came when their king was born in a manger in Bethlehem, the city of David. And there he lived, he brought with him the kingdom of God, and he died upon a cross. Only to be, to be risen from the dead. That's what this text is all about. The good news of this passage isn't the death of the wicked or the suffering of, of wrongdoers. It is rather that this world of chaos and war need not to be our experience. For Christ has, is victorious over it all if we choose his kingdom. That's why Jesus is good news. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.